Prayer. What comes to mind when I say that word? If you were thinking of prayer in your own life, how would you think about prayer? Would you think it a joy? Would you think it a struggle? Would you think it difficult? Would you think it easy? Would you think you are faithful or unfaithful? Could you improve or are you good? What comes to your mind? How many of you think, when you think of prayer, the first thing you think is, oh, I just can't keep focused when I pray. It's hard for me to pray. I forget to pray. Or I have so much to do. I did say grace this morning, but I have a lot to get done. Do you ever have those feelings? That there's just not time for prayer? Or that when you do pray, you just... Your mind wanders and it's a waste of time. You could be doing other things. And so you say a few prayers and you might read a psalm and then you move right away. Well, I would guess that if you're like me, when we don't pray, we don't realize what we're confessing. You see, when you don't pray, when I don't pray, when we think we can go through life without praying, what we're confessing loud and clear on a billboard that's lit up with neon lights is, I don't need God. I don't need Him. I can do it on my own. Do you ever think that way? You see, that's not our thought, is it? Our thought is, I don't need God. We know we need God, but then when we go to pray, we forget that we need God. And if we don't pray, we forget that we've just confessed that we don't need God. I did not chase down the video, but there is a video of a toddler in their crib, and that toddler's parents has, has used one of the voice command, like, I don't even like saying these words. I, I just think they'll show up on my phone. S-I-R-I or A-L-E-X-A. -E you know what I'm talking about? And they would talk to that little speaker, and they would, the parents would talk and play lullabies for the child. And the child got used to hearing that, true story. And the security cam video that's in the, in, the, in the room with the child picks up the child talking to, A-L-E-X-A, and saying, I need my daddy. And that little box speaks back to that child, you want me to add what? And the child says, daddy. And a few minutes go by, and that little box says, I've just added daddy to the shopping list. <laughs> That's how we pray. Too often, is it not? We know what we have before us in our day and we add prayer to our list as just one more of those things that we have to do instead of realizing everything on our list that day requires us to be submitted to the sovereign will and power and glory of God. And yet we just kind of add that to our household gods that day. Now maybe I'm not describing you, but I think I'm describing a lot of us. That prayer becomes burdensome because we forget that prayer is our lifeline to the one true living God who loves us and whose wisdom we need and who sovereignly controls every single detail of every single day that we have. And so our prayer puts us on his page instead of ours, using his power instead of ours, using wisdom from above instead of wisdom from below. 
And so when we go through life and we don't pray, or we don't pray as we should, every time we neglect that, we are advertising to the world, I don't need God. Isaiah wants to address that. God, through Isaiah, wants to address that. He wants to show us this morning what it means to be dependent upon his God and to call his people to dependence upon his God in such a way that leads them into his goodness. Now last week, we looked at the first part of this prayer. You can open up your Bibles to Isaiah 63 if you're not already there. Last week, we learned in verses 7 through 14, the beginning of this prayer, we learned much about what it meant to remember. And we reminded ourselves that remembering God and his works and his love and his promises are all good for us. They remind us of who God is, and so that strengthens us. But we also learned that maybe we sell that short a little bit because also remembering God helps us to proclaim glory to him because when we remember we're proclaiming his goodness and his works, it also helps us to crucify sin when we remember God because we ha- if we remember God's promises, we have to remember why we have them. If we remember God's mercy, we have to remember why we need it. But we also learned last week not only that it strengthened our proclamation of God and our, and our preaching about God, and it, it, it also helped our um, power to crucify sin, but it also brought us into a position of what? Humility. Because we are depending completely on him. Now, there was much we learned last week in those passages, but that that is the introduction to this morning as we move into the body of the prayer that you already heard Corey read for us this morning. We move into this body of the prayer as we move into the second, third, and fourth pleas that should mark our prayers. Last week, we saw the first plea, and now this week, we'll see the second, third, and fourth plea. And remember, just by way of review in the outline, we we saw the first plea, Oh Lord, help us remember the past. And the, the content of that plea, you faithfully loved and saved your people in the past. We see that in verses 7 through 9, a remembrance of, of, of the past. Your people consistently rebelled against you and brought your wrath right in the middle in 63 verse 10. And you remember your own character and actions, verses 11 through 14. And we learned that 11 through 14 could be the people doing the remembering or Yahweh himself. It starts out with Yahweh remembering the days of old. And that thought propels us into this next section because Isaiah, on behalf of his people, is going to plead with God to act according to his character. That's what he's going to do in this passage. So we won't read the passage again, but we'll begin right in verse 15 as we move to this second plea. O Lord, take notice of our present situation. The first, where is your zeal and compassion toward us? For you are our Father. Look at verse 15. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation. So the, the, Isaiah starts on behalf of these people to call God to look down from where he is in the heavens, in the, the holy and beautiful, and remember that word for beautiful in this section of Isaiah is a word that talks about his beautiful, glorious splendor. 
It has glory right at the heart of it. So from your holy and gloriously beautiful habitation, from where you sit, other than us, remember we learned about the transcendent God and the eminent God, the God who is there sitting above his creation, ruling and reigning, but also the God who is here, close to his people, dwelling with them. And he asked a question, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from us. So Isaiah is calling on the character of God. Where are your zeal and your might? Those have been prominent themes in Isaiah, have they not? Every time God talks about raising himself up for judgment and salvation, he uses these kinds of words, that it's his zeal that will do it. It's his strength. It's the, the strength of his right arm, his mighty arm. And we're immediately thought back, and this is what I think Isaiah is thinking of, are passages like Isaiah chapter 9, the very familiar passage in verses 6 and 7. What basis does Isaiah call out to God like this? It's passages like this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over its kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Now that promise is a promise of peace. That promise is a peace is a promise of rightness with God. A promise that there will be justice and righteousness on the face of the earth. And we've seen that promise pop up over and over in the book of Isaiah. And so Isaiah is remembering these things that God has said about himself. And he's saying, where are they now? Just look down from heaven and see where they are. Because he says, these are held back from me. That word held back is a very interesting word. It only occurs seven times in the Old Testament. Two times it has to do with the, the holding back. It has to do with the inner, all of them have to do with the inner emotions, the inner passions and zeal. And two times it has to do with holding back. When Joseph, who is in authority, sees his brothers come to him, he holds back his joy at the beginning and his excitement. It's also used of, of Mordecai and Haman. When Mordecai and Haman are, are, are um, passing each other and Haman restrains himself because Mordecai does not bow down to him. Remember, he's worked himself into a position of authority and Mordecai breaks all the rules and does not bow down to him when he walks. And he, Haman withholds his anger to him. It's also been used one time in Isaiah already of the Lord who is holding back his strength and his power. He has been silent, but he's not going to be silent anymore. He will not hold back his passion to judge sin and redeem his people, Isaiah 42, 14. So Isaiah is saying, if you look down, We've just sung about your greatness, your presence with your people. You've been present with your people in delivering them from Egypt. You've been present with your people in delivering them into the promised land. And you've been present and kept them all the way into their entry. But look down now. Where are they? So he starts by recognizing God's character and pleading with him on that basis. But he goes further. How can he ask these kinds of things? Look at verse 16. 
before that little connector helps us, right? He's made this claim. Where, is your, where are your zeal and your might, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion and are held back from me? Your heart, your tenderness, your compassion, they're held back from me. On what basis do I plead with you about this? For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel, that is Jacob, Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Yahweh, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. So he's remembering the covenant relationship that Yahweh has with these people. And he says, you should be showing your power. You should be showing your power for your own glory. Look down and see that it is missing. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel or Jacob does not acknowledge us, he's probably saying here, we don't look like those covenant people that you made those promises to, but you are still our covenant God. We may not look like them, but you are God. And he's also acknowledging they're the humans. You are our true father. We have Abraham as our father. That's the plea of the Pharisees several times in John, isn't it? Especially at one crucial point. We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, if Abraham were your father, and he rebukes them because they are rejecting Jesus, and if Abraham was their father, they wouldn't do that. So he's also acknowledging that. You, O Lord, are our Father. This idea of fatherhood happens twice in verse 16. He'll come back to it in verse 8 of the next chapter. So this is an important um, pillar holding up the argument of this prayer concerning God's character. Also reminds God, you're our Redeemer. Our Redeemer from old is your name. You have always been this way. You have always been redeeming a people for yourself. You are our Redeemer. So where is your heart, your compassion, your zeal, and your power on behalf of your people? Where is that now? Now that's the way he starts out this passage. He starts it out by remembering God's character and asking him to look down. Now he's going to get more strong with his request. But right now he's just saying, God, look down and see what we see. And he's going to describe this even further. He says, why do you face us as enemies? For though we don't act like it, we are your holy people. That's 17 through 19. Look at your text in verse 17. Oh, Yahweh, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not. Now that is a statement of Israel at many times in their history, is it not? They are not obedient to the Lord. They were not obedient to the Lord. That's why they're in Babylon, where this section of Isaiah is pointed toward. But even in Isaiah's day, writing when he wrote in that, in that, that 7th, 8th century time frame, even in that day, he, this is what the people look like. The northern kingdom has already been taken into captivity because of their disobedience. God has promised that that would happen. And these idea of covenant curses and blessings have driven the narrative many times for us in Isaiah. So he's making the statement that they're wandering and they don't fear you, but isn't it interesting that he blames God for this? Or does he? Is he blaming God Is God the one who just woke up one morning and said, I think today for my entertainment, I'll make my people not fear me. I think today for my entertainment, I will just look down on my people and harden their heart and make them wander from my ways. I think that will be my entertainment. Is that the God that Isaiah serves? Is that the God that we serve? It is not. 
And yet, how has Isaiah started in his commission? I want you to turn to two places. Turn, keep your finger here and turn back to Isaiah chapter 6. It's been a long time since we've looked at this passage. Look at verse 8. And I want you, as I read this little section, to focus in on what Isaiah's ministry will entail. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, verse 8, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of, his, of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and Yahweh removes people, from, uh, removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is Isaiah's ministry. Isaiah's ministry is to call the people into repentance. And when he does, their hearts will be hardened if they are not part of true Israel. When he does, if they want to in, embrace their own sin, their hearts will be hardened. So how does God cause that? He causes this by giving the truth of his word and sending his prophet to preach it. And as the word goes forth, their hearts are hardened at times because of their disobedience. This is what God revealed himself as at the beginning, right? I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have, be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And he promises that when he reveals himself to Moses, but he also says, I will not fail to hold people accountable for their sin. Both of those ideas are always present in God's actions. That's why Isaiah has been full of raising up for judgment and raising up for salvation brought hand in hand at the same time. So what Isaiah is crying out, and notice, I forgot to point out if you did not see it, beginning in verse 16, all of the eyes turns to we, turn to we and our. We have plural. Isaiah is speaking on behalf of these people. He's identifying with his people as he asks this prayer, and he's calling his people into this prayer. So back in Isaiah 63, I was going to take you to the passage in Moses in, in Exodus, but I'm not going to do that. That's why I said two passages. Go back to Exodus, or <laughs> to Isaiah, back to Isaiah 63. So this isn't an acknowledgement that God sits in the heavens as a capricious Lord. This is an acknowledgement that God acts against sin. And God redeems who he will, and that redemption is always going to be based on their repentance and turning to him. And the people have failed. That's why they're in Babylon. Why do you make us wander from your ways, verse 17, and harden our heart so that we fear you not? The confession that this is who we are. 
This is what sent us into captivity. So now the call. Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Now we are your people, God. You are our father. We are your heritage. How you treat us reflects on you. So please, Lord, return to us. Look down and see that your mercies are away from us and return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. That's referring to the land. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. This is Babylon talking about the destruction of the temple and them being taken into captivity. We have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. We may look like people who are not called by your name, but we call on you for the sake of your own glory to look down and see that your compassion toward us, your desire to redeem, your desire to save is not present. So Lord, look down and see this. So it's the beginning of a confession, is it not? It's the beginning of saying, we are a people turned away from you, but please, Lord, even though we don't look like your people, honor your promises and come and save us. Come to redeem us. So take notice, Lord, of our present situation. But the third plea of this prayer, oh Lord, we recognize the reality of our situation. So we've entered into this discussion of reality, causing, calling on God to come down according to his promises and reality into this people who don't look like his people. And then he's going to start confessing why that is so. Recognize the reality of our situation. First, we need your powerful presence just as you've been present in the past for those who wait for you. For those who wait for you. Look at 64 verse 1. All oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. I just want you to park there for a minute. You can see the intensity. First, look down and see. But now, come down. Come down and do your work. And I wonder, are they ready for that? Are you ready for that? Are we ready for the Lord to, to rend the heavens and come down in all his power and all his glory? Because what Isaiah is confessing for his people is they're not. They're not ready. He's going to go on and tell more about their sin and they're not ready, but he is trusting God. He's remembering the promises of God now remember, when we remember the promises of God, the promise of mercy of God to us, what do we also have to remember? Why we need the mercy. This is why I say that if we're not praying, we're confessing very loudly that we don't need God. His mercy is what we need because we are sinners. We've received that when we are saved, but we continue to need it because we continue to sin. Because we are not always loving God as we should. We are not always pursuing him as we should. And when we find ourselves in that situation, the first thing we have to do before we call on his promises is remember who we are and what we have done. Look what follows. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble 
at your presence. So remembering that sinaitic vision of the Lord coming down and the fear that it brought upon the people. Now remember, he's already confessed in verse 19, we have become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. And now he wants him to come down and deal with his adversaries. And his people, in this prayer, now look like his adversaries. This is a strong faith in and belief in the promises of God for his people. And Isaiah is calling God down according to his character to act as he will for the sake of his people and for the sake of his own glory, that the mountains might quake at your presence, that, that fire would be powerful, your strength, your redemption, your salvation, and all for the purpose of making his name known to their adversaries and that the nations might trum tremble at your presence. But look what he says about the people. When you did awesome things that we did not look at, the word means to wait for, hopefully, that we didn't look, look at, we, we didn't look for, we didn't wait for in hope. When you did those awesome things, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet with him, with him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Now look what he's confessing here. We want you to come down. You've come down in the past, and we remember those things, and you've also acted in ways that we haven't hoped for. We haven't been looking for you to act as you would act as God. We haven't been waiting for you to do these things. We've been caught up in our own life so that we look like a people who don't know you, who are not called by your name. And then he continues to tell us who this God is. From of old, no one has heard. Now he's already used this phrase in chapter 43, 11, chapter 45, 5 and 6 and 21. This God who there is no one like him. God has presented himself as this. He's presented himself as the one who there is no one like him to, uh, against the idol makers and those who would worship idols, against God's people when they're worshiping idols, questioning why are you doing what you're doing. So Isaiah is remembering, we know who you are. And even though we didn't wait for you, we didn't look with hope for you to do these things, we still desire for you to rend the heavens and come down because we are your people. Now there's a little phrase in here that should give us some pause about how we live our life. It's, it's connected with prayer, but it's also connected with how we live our life and trusting in the promises and character of God. Because there are many times that we walk through life complaining about things and we're not looking hopefully for God to act, are we? We're just letting things go by and we're complaining about the reality that we see with our eyes instead of letting the spiritual reality that we know in our hearts overwhelm what we see and say, this isn't all true. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. And yet Jesus is worthy. We're just saying that. So this is bringing to our attention that there are ways that we are walking through our life where we have the opportunity to be remembrancers. Remember just last chapter, um, the, the Messiah appointed watchman on the wall who would bring to remembrance the things of the Lord. Now Isaiah is functioning as that remembrancer. He's bringing to mind the things of the Lord and he's calling us to do the same thing. 
So every little thing we go through in our life, if we're looking through our own physical eyes instead of our spiritual eyes, we are going to be overwhelmed by the world and we're going to be overwhelmed by the brokenness instead of the sovereignty of our God over that world. There are many things in your own life that you need to hold on to and remember. When God works and he overturns what seemed like was going to be some sort of catastrophe or sorrow, and he overturns it for his glory, and we thank him for it, and then we move on, and a year later we do what? We forget. We forget that there are times we need to remember for us and for our children and our grandchildren and our friends, remember when the Lord answered this. We forget looking around in our church and seeing very few children and starting to cry out to God for children, and now what do we have? Just a few, right? Dozen, just a few dozen. 20 years from now, are we going to remember that and constantly be bringing praise? Especially when your children's um, children are in our church and they're praying, They're praying because there's not enough children in the church. Will they have your words in their mind? Remember what mom and dad said. There was a time in this church where they didn't have any children, and the church prayed, and God brought a bunch of children. So we need to do what? Fret. No, we need to pray just like they did. We have people in our church today who are young and seeking a spouse. We need to pray. We need to pray that God brings people in so that our, our, the, the young people that we have in our church who are seeking a spouse, a good and godly desire, that God would bring people in, that that might be his will for them. Do we pray or do we just sit back and wonder, well, I guess they'll have to go somewhere else. We need to be the people who look all the time. I read stories this week just Dozens of stories about people who are not looking for God. One that struck me was missionaries in the 30s in Japan. And they ran this school for um, underprivileged and, and poor children. And I think it was all girls. And they had hundreds of girls at this school. And sometimes these girls would get out of their school, go get further education, and a few of them would come back. And they come back to serve the same community that they left. One time, there was a young lady who came back, and she was one of the most gifted they had ever had, and she came back and had been there for a year or so, was serving in this school, and then she was contacted by another family and her parents, and it was brought back to her memory that when she was 10, in the village that she grew up in, her parents promised her to another young man. And in their culture, that promise was binding. So she had to go and marry this young man that she did not want to marry at all. And he would take her away from the school, away from coming back to the place that made her who she was in in human terms, and now she was going to have to leave. And she was distraught. The missionary was distraught. She was indignant on her behalf. And she said there was the founder of the school, who was a local Japanese woman, who never said a word. Never addressed the indignation, but also never tried to encourage Guess what happened by the time the wedding day got there? This couple was madly in love. God had knit their hearts together, and he realized her gifts, and she taught him everything that she had learned in this school, and he had learned none of that. And then they started the same kind of school in the place where he lived, and the whole ministry was multiplied. And the missionary said, we did not look at that situation through God's eyes. We looked at it through our eyes. How many times does that happen in our life? 
When we're remembrancers and we are bringing back to memory the things of the Lord and reminding us of his goodness and his character and the way that he works, it has to connect to our sight so that we see spiritually rather than seeing physically. Well, Isaiah is bringing this idea. There is no God like our God. There never has been. Though no eye has ever seen. So there is no other God like our God. And look what he says at the end of verse 4. 64 verse 4. This God who acts for those who wait for him. Now this idea of waiting has been three or four times already in Isaiah, hasn't it? Those who wait on the Lord will not grow weary and he will bear them up as e- under eagle's wings. Those who wait for the Lord receive the promises of the Lord. Three different places in Isaiah already. If you want to write them, I'm not going to take you to them, but if you want to write them down, chapter 40, verse 31, chapter 8, verse 17, chapter 30, verse 18, and the surrounding areas of all of those. So he's reminding himself of the goodness of God who act for those who wait on him, and he is bringing his people now as ones who recognize their sinfulness and their turn toward now waiting on him. See, prayer does this, doesn't it? Prayer brings out our sinfulness, which you're about to see. Prayer brings out God's goodness, reminds us of his promises and his faithfulness to his covenant. And when we pray, we're reminded of those things. So if we are walking in the other direction, that brings us back to him. Because what does he do? He disciplines those he loves. Look at your text. The second Part of, O Lord, we recognize the reality of our situation begins in the second half of verse 5. We know you've turned from us because we've sinned, so we repent. Look at the middle of verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? Now, just answer that question from a human perspective. The answer is clearly no. A holy God has redeemed you, and he's angry with you because you've sinned. Should you be saved? Why? On what basis would you claim that you have the right to be saved? And I want you to notice the long time here. In our sins, we have been a long time. That is the same word at the beginning of verse 4. From of old, no one has heard. So, We've been sinning as long as you've been a good and gracious God. Your people have been turning away from you, but we've also been turning toward you because you are a good and gracious God. Look at verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time. Shall we be saved? Now, this is where the weight comes. This is where the weight of what Isaiah is confessing on behalf of his people comes. I don't want to cheapen this by bringing a Calvin and Hobbes um, um, comic, but Calvin and Hobbes is a very theologically astute picture of human and, and God relationships, is it not? One of those little pictures has them both going down the side of a hill on a sled, and, which is often for them, I know, but going down the side of a hill on the sled, and there's, there's a, an eternal conversation going on in his head. And Calvin says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes says, you're worried you haven't been good? And Calvin says, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? 
I haven't killed anybody. That's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I get lots of presents? Hobbes says, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. That's what's being taught here, right? It's not just their external actions. It is everything internal within them that is rebelling against their God. And he confesses it. And he throws them on the mercy of God. But he knows in order to do that, there must be an action given the confession of this sin. Look at verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment, filthy rags, literally a menstrual garment. This is the epitome of a description of uncleanness because of sin, of filthiness in in the presence of a holy God and being barred from his presence. But it is a clear confession. We have all become like this. We have all, all of us, all of us have gone astray like sheep. All of us, remember the confession, the need for the Savior to come, the need for the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Everyone has done this, and Isaiah knows this. And so in order to call out their God as Father, they must act like his children. And his children confess and turn when God reveals sin to them. Look at verse 7 or the end of verse 6, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Now, I don't want you to skip over that. This is such a descriptive picture of how sin leads us into more sin if we don't step in with the gospel in our own life and fight it. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities Like the wind, take us away. When we're pursuing iniquities, the iniquities themselves take us away. Like that fading leaf is taken away by the wind. This is what happens when when people start pursuing sin and they're given over sin to sin to sin to sin. Sin has its way with us. And we can all experience, we have all experienced this, haven't we? Where you give in to sin and all of a sudden your next thought is, well, I'll just go ahead and do this. It doesn't matter. I already did that. And that's just sin, taking us into sin, taking us into sin. It is our willingness to give our members up to Satan for unrighteousness. And he is confessing this. He's saying, this is who we have been. And when that happens, listen, there are two groups of people in here this morning. There are some who have never turned from that way of life. Oh, you may do good things at times, but what is the standard? By what standard will you be judged? You may do things that externally would be things that you might say please God, but if your heart is turned away from him and you are not connected with his son, then that is always going to be a filthy rag and it will not be righteousness. And so you today need for the first time in your life to turn away from your sin and turn toward Jesus. We'll hear more about this Jesus in just a moment, but he is the one who is the suffering servant. He's the one who comes to live and die and be raised again and sits at the right hand of God and will come back for judgment. And all who are not connected with him will face eternal punishment. And so today is the day that you turn and you say, I'm not being given over to sin anymore. I'm going to turn and I'm going to turn toward Christ and repent of those sins so that my life is turned. 
But there's another group of people that are here. Those are the people who have already done this. We've already trusted in Christ, and yet sin has seeped into our life. We're not murderers. We haven't killed anybody. We're, we're, we can make the justification that Calvin made of Calvin and Hobbes. We can, we can make that justification that we haven't done that. We can stand on the street corner and say, I'm glad I'm not like that person. Or we can start applying the gospel of Jesus Christ and crucify the sin by the power that he's given us in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Because we, we are his people. We have, been, we have been redeemed and we are now to count sin dead to us. That's where we are. But if you don't do that, your heart begins giving over to the next sin and the next sin. And all of a sudden, you don't even realize how much sin is in your life. Becoming a remembrancer brings that into focus. It always brings it into focus because the first thing you must do is lay before God as a sinner. Lay before God as one who is not worthy of the salvation that he has given you and trust in him after your repentance to exalt you at the proper time, as James tells us. That's what Isaiah is doing for his people here. Verse 7 there is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. You have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. He looks at his people and said, nobody's seeking after you, but we are turning. And now we're seeking. We are turning away from this. The last plea follows right on the heels, and we can't dally very much here, or we're left with the call to the people to repent, but no movement. So the fourth plea that should mark our player, prayers, O oh Lord, we submit to you, so do not remember our iniquity or remain silent with your salvation. Look at verse 8. But now, O oh Yahweh, you are our Father. This is what we look like. We are sinners. We have turned away from you. You have judged us you have sent your anger, but now you are our father. Remember, come down and be our father. Rend the heavens and come into our presence, our repentance, and demonstrate that you are our father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Yahweh, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. How can he pray like this? How can you pray like this? If you have never come into saving grace and not experienced the salvation of the Lord, how can you even dare to pray like this? Because God is a God who chooses, upon repentance, to not remember iniquities. How can you pray like this if you are in Christ? Especially if you're in Christ. That's where the guilt is the heaviest, is it not? We, we have received this grace, and yet we still don't pray. And we follow after our own sin. And we act as if God is not our God, and we are not his people. And then he reveals it to us, and we're brought low and we confess our sin, but how do we ask for the salvation that he's promised us? Keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah 54. 
Look at verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. Yahweh of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For Yahweh has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will deliver you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. This is like the day of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says Yahweh, who has compassion on you. Now that's our father speaking to his children. This required the work of the suffering servant. This requires the work of Christ. This requires the work of the perfect one, the strong, mighty right arm of God, who will be sent as an infant, born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life, died on the cross in our place for our sins, suffering God's wrath, and then buried in a tomb but raised in three days and now he sits at the Father's right hand ruling and reigning and he will return. And when he returns, he's returning in judgment against everyone who is not his. Against everyone who has not repented of their sin and trusted in him for salvation. We who have trusted in him through nothing of our own good all for his glory, all because he deemed it so for the praise of his glorious grace, all because it glorifies him, all because he has set out for his glory to redeem a people for himself and glorify him. We get to participate in that if we turn and start living lives that are waiting on God and his goodness. That's a message for those of us who need to repent for the first time, and that's a message for those of us who need to repent yet again because believers repent always, because we can. That's the promise. That's the God that Isaiah calls upon and says, don't remember all the sin. We know it. We want you to come down and see your grace is missing. Rend the heavens and come down as a father to your people. That's what God will do. Look at verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful, glorious house where our fathers praise you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. This is the clearest part of the prayer that puts this in the context of the Babylonian captivity. Any of God's people can pray this at any time when we are in the midst of our own sin. 
Everything's in ruins, but you, O Lord, rend the heavens. Come down, save your people, and judge your enemies. And verse 12, it ends with a question which never satisfies us, does it? Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Yahweh? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? We feel like we get to the end of Jonah. We think we finally reached the climax and the resolution of that climax, and then we have a question. A question to Jonah, a question that, that causes Jonah to have to sit up and take, listen, to, to take notice of what God has done. But for us, it makes us completely uncomfortable because we want a, a story with an ending and preferably happy, right? Jonah ends like this. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And we want an answer. Well, thankfully, in Isaiah, we get an answer. Look at the first verse of chapter 65. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people to walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. And he goes on to talk about this people. Now, we'll get into this verse next week, but I just, I don't want to leave us with the question when the very next verse gives us the answer. Isaiah has prayed on behalf of his people, and that prayer has brought the character of God into focus. It's brought the sinfulness of the people into focus. It has brought the boldness of Isaiah to ask on behalf of his people for God to come down and rend the heavens in judgment. But as he does so, he knows that the promises of God are to redeem his people at the same time because he is sovereign, not because of what they've done. It's not to us, O Lord, for the glory, but to you that you get the glory. He's based his whole prayer on a confession of the reality of the people and a confession of what he knows about God. And then he asks the question because he is not God and he cannot presume what God will do. So immediately in chapter 65, Yahweh shows up and gives his answer. And from here to the end of Isaiah, we're going we're gonna to even go in rapid fire even more from, uh, from judgment to hope to judgment to hope, judgment to hope, five different switches between judgment and hope because that marks the entire teaching in Isaiah. So if we go all the way back to the beginning and we think of this sermon and we, begin, and we think about our own prayer life, is this the way you pray? Do you pray remembering the character of God, confessing your sins? Now, when we think about it, we say, well, that's the way you're supposed to pray. It's the way I've been taught to pray all my life. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's the way I've been taught to pray all my life. But Isaiah wants us to make sure that we truly see the character of God and we truly see our own sin and we truly, biblically turn from it. That we're not like the woman whose obituary was written like a job description for a resume. True story. I went to the site and saw the obituary on the site. 
I was led to this site by somebody else mentioning it, saying this woman wrote her own obituary. But right on that site where the obituary is placed, a former student of this teacher claims that her daughter wrote it. Whoever, it is mocking God as someone who is slaying in that casket is now being having this obituary writ written about them that draws all their hope for their eternal salvation to themselves. Just listen to a couple of places. It's written like a resume. This is Beatrice Fedwick, and it appeared in 2022, February 19th, in the Winnipeg Free Press. This is the obituary written as a resume. Dear Lord, please accept my application for eternal life. My resume is as follows. Objectives. To be honest and compassionate, to treat everyone with respect, to demonstrate integrity in all I do, and to live as independently as possible, as long as possible. That's the objectives of this woman's life. Starts to begin, the next section is references. She lists all the people who have passed on before her, and, she, and the, the, the writing is, these are already with you in heaven and can provide references for me. All the people who are left, there's no openings for them in heaven just yet. So don't talk to them. Then after a section on her training, her education as a teacher, her experience where she has been a teacher, she writes about her experience. Lord, you know that I never had any teacher's pets. For gifted children already have a better chance of success. Rather, I put my heart into teaching those with learning challenges or difficult family situations. It was here that I feel I did my best work. Just in case you don't know God. And after a section on hobbies and additional information, she writes this. Lord, I hope that you will find that I have met my objectives, stated in the first paragraph, and deserve a place in your heavenly home. You know where to find me to further discuss my qualifications. Now we may hear that and think of it as a joke, but we hear the mocking of God and the self-sufficiency of man. And if we go back to the beginning of this sermon, when I ask you if you struggled in prayer, and when you didn't pray, did you ever stop to think that you were confessing that you were sufficient and you did not need God? We don't want to live lives that represent this obituary. We want to live lives that are constantly and perpetually connected with our maker in such a way that when we speak, they're his words. When we make decisions, it's his wisdom. When we repent, it's the gift that he has given us. When we praise him, it flows from the truth of his word. When we look at the world, we see it as he sees it, not as we see it with physical eyes. When we preach the gospel, we're actually preaching a gospel that we believe is saving. And that means we have to preach the gospel or we don't believe it's saving. This is the way we live our life. Isaiah is calling us and his people to pray that we live dependent upon God. That should be what marks us. It will bring him glory and it'll save us from a myriad of troubles with God and our fellow man. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. We are grateful to you that you have redeemed us. We are grateful to you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in your word so that we might see you clearly and see us clearly. And now, Father, as we 
turn our hearts and our minds to the Lord's Supper, we ask you to do just that. For us to remember that we are dependent upon the work of Christ in every single season of our life, for every decision we make. And so as we come together now, we're remembering this work that you sent your son to do, your faithfulness in him, his faithfulness, to shed his blood and give his body that we might have life. So as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper, Father, remind us that this is an ongoing remembrance of the work that has been done for us and our need for that work. That we are completely dependent upon the work of Christ. That we look back at his sacrifice and we realize that that fuels us into obedience. We realize that your love for us through him fuels into our obedience that shows our love for Christ. But we also, Lord, we look for the day that he will return, the day where all things will be set right, the day that he returns and he redeems fully his people and judges fully his enemies. And we will rejoice that the zeal of the Lord has done this. So feed us this morning on the truth of these words, on the truth of the sacrificial life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that we might feed spiritually in such a way that we are strengthened toward that obedience. We ask, Father, that you would do this for your glory, and that as we are remembering the work of Christ and his work that causes you to not remember our sin, and we are grateful for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.